Excellent. Thank you very, very much, Fee, uh, for reading that. That's a long passage. Um, that was very, very helpful. And uh, let's uh, get cracking um, um, on it. We've had two very long passages over the course of the last uh, few weeks, um, but I hope they've been really helpful for us as we sort of unpacked them and looked at them together. And, uh, and before we get into this, let me just pray uh, very, very briefly for us. Father God, thank you and praise you for these wonderful words um, in Ecclesiastes. Thank you, as we've always been praying, that every single part of your word is useful for us, for rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness, and spurring us on, and, and reminding us of the simple truths of the gospel. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would happen uh, this morning, uh, that, that um, in the midst of, of all this wisdom, we would see the simple truths of the gospel found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be encouraged and refreshed and, and set away from here, being able to truly enjoy our portion that you have given to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, as I say, welcome to the next part of Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, this big chunk. We're, we're sort of beginning to come on the home straight now. Cheeks, um, in Ian, uh, our assistant minister, he's uh, been driving this series for us. He's been teaching us. He's been helping me work our way through this amazing piece of literature. And he's going to sort of take over from next week and finish it off for us um, before Easter. But today we pick up pretty much where we were last week. Last week, if you remember, we were looking at how we live life wisely within our limitations. And we saw that there were three areas, weren't there? Three overarching limitations in life that we are encouraged to live ex acceptingly under, live wisely under, not fighting to move beyond our physical uh, mortality. These three areas were, were, were death, uh, that's the total and final limitation on humanity. Um, um, secondly, our, our general weaknesses that frustrate us as they come up against hardship, our greed, our, our impatience, our anger, our yearning for the past. Don't live like that, says, says the, the, the preacher. And thirdly, our last limitation, our unrighteousness, our imperfection. Don't try and work your way to a better and longer life, being overly good. That'll not work. That won't help you. Live as you are, accepting that you are everyone, you are like everyone else around you, needing uh, the, 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 the presence of the risen Savior through grace. Only he will be able to work out what happens after you die. Don't be overly righteous. Th those are the three things that we looked at last week, and, and that is what we're looking at this week in a very similar passage. For here, the theme seems to continue. Here in these two chapters, we sort of hit more limitations on our fleeting lives, I believe, but this time, with the end goal for the preacher to reveal to us how it is that we not only live wisely in the light of them, but how we enjoy living wisely in the light of them. We find that right at the end of our passage, chapter 9, verse 7 to 9, which I think sort of holds all this together. Read those verses again with me. Go, eat your bread with joy, says the preacher. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in, in life and in your toil which you toil for under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You, you can enjoy this life, says the preacher. In fact, that's what he's been saying a lot. Eat, drink, and be merry. He's been saying it all the time. You can enjoy this life. You can enjoy your food. You can enjoy your wife that you've been given all your days. You can enjoy earthly relationships as well, that idea promotes. Your, your friendships, your loved ones. You can enjoy getting dressed and washing yourselves, being presentable, because God's already approved what you do, and that he's ordained all these things in your life for you. Because, verse 9, that is your portion in which you're allowed to work for. 
You see, you, you, you humans, says the preacher, you have been given an incredible thing. This is what we've been looking at over the course of the last few weeks. In what is a very difficult, toiling life, you have total liberty to enjoy the things that God has given you with a merry heart, knowing that life is hard, knowing that everything has been given from God's hand and knowing ultimately that you're just not here for very long. And that's what verse 10 is saying. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Enjoy working hard, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. You're not going to be here for very long. You can't take your stuff with you. You know you can't extend your, your life, your work life, your earthly treasures beyond death. So enjoy working for them while you can here. Not fatalistically. Again, we've looked at that. And that doesn't go back to the one, I'm just going to accrue as much stuff and I'm going to feed myself as much stuff before I die, become a hoarder. You go back to chapter one and the, and the, the big experiment that the preacher was dealing with, well, that doesn't work. That's just vanity. That's just rubbish. But enjoy working hard. Enjoy being promoted, creating beautiful things because you're able to while you're alive. It's a really wonderful thing. You've not got long on this earth. Go for it. Enjoy it. God has given this short life of work and of living to you. He's given friendship and marriages and relationships to you. Work at them. Enjoy them. You're not here for very long. Um, the, the best way to explain this, uh, before we head properly into the, these verses, is an illustration that Andy Buchan used at Chalmers, for those of us who know Andy, and who might remember this. This was from about 10 years ago when he preached in this passage. And uh, he and I worked it through together 10 years ago. And, and he, he said this. I'm going to repeat it because it's really helpful for us. He said, this way of thinking is a little bit like two people staying in a, in a holiday resort. One is a guest. The other is the resort manager on her day off. And uh, he says that, that, that their enjoyment of their experience at the resort will be very different. They'll both eat the same food, they'll sleep in the same beds, they'll lounge next to the same pool, they'll have um, access to the same facilities, and yet they will experience those things in very different ways. The manager will not be able to shed her responsibility. She'll always be thinking, oh, this is my hotel, I need to make sure everything's right. And so as she lounges next to the pool, she notices that one of the filters is broken, and she thinks, oh, goodness, I, I need to fix that. What will people think? At dinner, she notices the wait staff are a bit late, and so she looks around at everyone and thinks, oh, goodness, I need to sort this out. This isn't a great image for my business. She remembers she forgot to get back to that email about tax that was due in yesterday. Her mind always going, always analyzing, always having to problem solve, always panicking. Whereas the guest ultimately can, can just relax. He knows he's only passing through. He doesn't have to worry about the same things. That's someone else's problem. I'll just ask that lady to fix it. She's in charge. I'm not in charge. I, I won't be here next week. <laughs> I, I'm not responsible. He doesn't care about things needing to be improved or if the budget's struggling or if the tax man is going to turn up. He, he's not going to be there in a week's time. It's not his problem. He doesn't own the place. What's the point? He will enjoy these things better knowing that he's passing through, that he is not the owner-manager of this place. Well, these two passages we've looked at, and the, the whole book, in fact, is very much driving to this point. Don't see yourself, says the preacher, as the owner-manager of the earth. You're not. You're, you're limited. You're mortal. You're only passing through. Life is short. Life is fleeting. And you've been given an element of eternity in your hearts by this creator God that reminds you that this life isn't all there is. There is so much more. You're just passing through. And we know that. We find that in the Lord Jesus Christ, this creator that the preacher keeps banging on about. The only one who knows, he keeps saying about what's going to happen next. Be a visitor. 
Don't live taking on the pressures of the earth that belong to the owner-manager. That is God. That is God's job. Enjoy what he has created and given to you in your time, in your lot given to you in life, knowing that death is just ahead of you. Let him worry about the big things in life. You enjoy it. Even in the midst of real toil and hardship it contains. Either you're in charge and you set the agenda and everything rests on you, at which point life will not be enjoyable. It just won't be, says the preacher, if you're trying to do that. Or I can let myself go appropriately, resting in God's hands and enjoying working at the good that he has given me in my time. I think that's a really helpful illustration because I think that's exactly where these verses are heading. Remember that you are passing through, you're not in charge. And the preacher reminds us of this. He gets us to chapter 9, 7 to 10 by showing us three further areas in living in which we are deeply limited. In this passage, the focus is more on the fact that we are powerless. We can rightly leave all these things to God who is in control. And, and these three areas are the fact that we are powerless in the face of earthly power. We are powerless in the face of injustice. And bringing this whole section full circle where we were last week, we are powerless again, he reminds us, in the face of death. And let's take those one by one. Our first point this morning, we are powerless in the face of earthly power. Just read with me again, verses one to nine. Who is like the wise of, of, of chapter eight? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take a stand in an evil cause, for the king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Very simply, says the preacher, if, if you want to have real insight as to how powerless or limited you are, indeed how not in control you are of your life, look at those powers and kings and rulers above you who by their very nature have more power than you do and who can change your entire lives. Verse 9, we live in a world where man has power over man to his hurt. That's the world we live in, says the preacher. Don't be surprised. Much like last week, accept this to be true, the light of this unchanging reality. There will be men and women who hold power over you, often to your detriment. And in these verses, especially at the time when Ecclesiastes were written, the king was very powerful. He was the power. He could command, verse 3, anything. Verse 4, his word is supreme. Verse 8, he could send you to, to war. He has power over your lives. Now, our king can't do that, but our parliament can and does. However democratic a society we live in, ultimately my freedoms for good or for ill are affected by every single decision Parliament makes. And we've been seeing that in spades, haven't we, over the course of the last few years. And, says the Bible, I do have to obey Parliament's commands. It might even send me to war. It generally might do that. Ultimately, the truth is, I often have little or no say over decisions made over us. And they have a huge impact on our experience of life. And we're not just talking about kings and governments and presidents. Any regional or local human power can be this to us, can't they? Our local government. You can bring in a hiking council tax and suddenly you're struggling where you weren't before, just overnight, just like that. 
your boss. She makes a, a budget decision. Projects are rearranged, and suddenly you're on the brink of potentially losing your job. And, and life suddenly looks very different, literally in the space of a week. Teachers changing curricula over time that manifestly and, and recently very negatively, I believe, impacts the lives of our children. Issues that weren't issues at all even three or four years ago are now issues that our children have to bear to breaking point. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so on, so on, and so on. Authority is this natural obstacle, says the preacher, which stops our plans and smooth sailing in life. So how do we live well and wisely? How do we look for our enjoyment under earthly powers and authorities over which we have little or no power? Well, first, says the preacher, verse 2, obey. Be careful, and where you can, obey the king's command, remembering what of God's oath to the king. Now, this translation is very sticky. I've got a lot on this. I'm not going to say it now. But all that is to say, however you read this, whatever the Hebrew means, it means that God has authority over the king and that he's been placed there by God's authority. And, and that's what we read through the entirety of the Bible, isn't it? That's what we read in the New Testament, Romans 13, that kings and rulers and authorities are placed over us by God, the king, the owner-manager of the earth. This is what um, Romans 13 verses 1 to, says, uh, 1 to 2 says, pretty much building on these verses in Ecclesiastes. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist him will incur judgment. That's what we read in Romans. You see, ultimately, God is in charge of earthly power. He has appointed them. That's everything that Robin, Robbie has been praying this morning. And so we are to obey earthly power. We're, we're meant to accept graciously this limitation over us. By whom? By God. And we accept this limitation by acting wisely under our rulers. 1 Peter says this, doesn't he? By, by obeying the emperor as we after honoring God. So how are we to obey the king? How are we to live wisely under them? Well, verse 3, we're not to be too hasty. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Don't take a stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. In other words, be canny. Be, be really astute. Don't rebel all the time. Don't spark off or go nuts or trash government and powers and the council and your boss and your kids' teachers all the time. Don't, don't keep shouting your mouth off or shooting from the hip with every law or decision you don't like without thinking about it and praying about it and, and talking to others about it. Don't leave the presence of the king too soon, in other words. Don't, 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 don't throw your hands up in the air and lose your rag and sort of run off in a fit of pique. But by doing that warns the preacher, you could be doing evil. You could end up standing in an evil cause. And then the king really will have your number. He will do whatever he pleases with you. That's the world we live in in our society, isn't it? Everything is charged and every law is passed, is hated or bitterly fought for. Everything is wretched and acrimonious. And the preacher says, no. <laughs> if you want to live and enjoy life, and not be stressed all the time with every command that you don't like, having to whip up more further from your lobby group, then just step back a little bit. Don't be hasty. Otherwise, you'll just be exhausted. As Christians, as believers in the Creator, learn to live circumspect, law-abiding lives. That's your knee-jerk reaction to everything. Not everything's a righteous battle, in other words. At points in our church life and society, it really will be. 
And we're knocking on the door of this very reality in the age where we will quite literally have to be disobeying the king's command. There are things I will just not be teaching my children regardless of what the law tells me to do. It's just not going to happen. The Bible does set my precedent, and that's okay. The end of verse 5 allows for that. The wise heart will know the proper and proper time, the just way to leave the king, to make that call, to lovingly disobey. Verse 6, there is a time and a way for everything. 1 Peter 2, you obey God first as you honor the emperor. In verse 2 of this passage, Ecclesiastes 8, you might have to leave the presence of the king. He's not even saying that you shouldn't. You might have to where you say, actually, enough is enough. Just don't be too hasty in doing that. Your right response for a joyful life under God's authority is to obey the authorities that he's placed over us. And it is just true that our authorities have given us unmerited, unlimited freedom in this country to preach the gospel. Praise God. And we need to be praying for our leaders. We're commanded to do that in the Bible. We just need to do, we need to choose our timing well and carefully. In so doing, verse 5, we'll know no evil thing. That's not that we'll be shielded from all harm. <laughs> I mean, that's everything that the preacher's been telling us about, the fact that we face harm all the time, especially under rulers. But it means that we won't be playing with fire. We won't be making rash decisions that lead to wrong motives and real genuine danger. Or in the language of Romans 13, verse 2, in not obeying the king, we will be incurring judgment. Besides all that, says the preacher, verse 4, remember that actually your protests to government, the king, ultimately are very weak. Just remember that. It's not that you shouldn't be doing it, but it's very weak. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Just get it into your minds that little you cannot change very much in the authorities over you. Often your anger, however right and godly and sometimes necessary, it just will fall on deaf ears often. So hold your fire. Keep your powder dry, as the saying goes. You can imagine Daniel does. We've looked at Daniel. Daniel does this. There are so many decisions, you imagine, that he would have had to have sat on. We talked about that. And at one point, he goes, you know what? This is the point. I'm going to make a small decision change. And I'm going to test the king. Be wise. Don't speak until you really need to. Don't be the loudmouth who complains at everything. Otherwise, no one's, just, no one's going to hear you. And it's not really going to matter when something actually needs to be said. To enjoy life, says the preacher, to stop you from living a ball of constant frustration and acrimony and anger and rebellion and cynicism, except there are things you cannot change. We are ultimately powerless in the face of earthly power. So, so live peaceably as much as you can under them, but by, by obeying God first. And before we move on, remember verse 7, says the preacher, for he that is the king does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. In short, and in summary, remember as much as your power is limited under earthly powers, remember that theirs is as well. Ultimately, there are things they cannot do. The king can't hold your spirit. He can't tell the future. He has no power over the day of death. Not really. That, that all belongs to God, the true king, the owner-manager of the earth who has power to do all of this, who does have power over your spirit, your future, your death. Remember, ultimately then, says the preacher, that you owe allegiance to a higher power. You don't have to worry about earthly kings. You don't have to worry about Nicholas Sturgeon, whoever comes next, Rishi Sunak. They're, they're, they are so limited. God holds everything. He holds the future. 
live under these guys remembering that. They are actually small fry in the grand scheme of eternity, which God has placed in your heart, and that's what you're living for. But let's move on uh, more quickly to our second limitation. That's, that is point two. We are powerless in the face of injustice. And that's what the preacher is dealing with in the rest of chapter 8. And again, this is a topic that comes up time and time again in this book. Read from verse 10 with me. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. You see, there is such an awful imbalance in the world, says the preacher. The wicked were allowed to run amok, verse 10, in the holy places, and they were praised in the same city where they were doing evil. That's hevel, that's vanity, it's awful. And, and that is because, verse 11, we all know the reality that, that sentences against true evil are rarely meted out. If they are, justice is achingly slow. Putin almost certainly won't face judgment this side of eternity. You, you sort of know it, don't you? You just sort of know it. It's that kind of experience that the preacher's talking about here. Hitler didn't, Stalin didn't, Pol Pot didn't, Idi Amin did not really. Furthermore, verse 14, there's a frustration, a hevel placed on the earth, whereby the righteous have things happen to them that the wicked deserve, and the wicked have things happen to them that the righteous deserve. People literally get away with murder, and the innocent get murdered. We hate this to be true. And yet there is so little we can do about it, says the preacher. We are powerless in the face of injustice. This too is vanity. It's heavily. I can't grasp it. It's too wretched. What do we do in the light of this? How do we live enjoying life under this kind of horror? That's really hard. Well, what we don't do is take matters into our own hands. That's what verse 11 warns against. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In short, he means that injustice is so pervasive in the world and so perverse and that justice is so slow, especially the more evil the person is, that all humans are driven to distraction by it and begin to take matters into their own hands. And in so doing, they sort of fall into evil themselves. We see this often. This is sort of vigilante justice, isn't it? And in our heart of hearts, we might really agree with this. I remember watching a documentary last year in the, on the BBC on rogue teenage gangs that were going around and terrorising suburban communities for years on end in England, setting fires to property, abusing people's children on the way home from school, burglarising homes, and after total inaction, it seemed, from a powerless police force who didn't have the time, the money, the resources, or the will to tackle it, the community said, enough is enough and fought back against the gangs, took matters into their own hands. House owners and fathers began to fight hooded youths in the streets, driven mad by the injustice, and they get into trouble. They descend into doing what these gangs are doing. Their hearts get hardened. Vigilante justice consumes them. There was one father who said, I've quit my job. I, I, want, to, I want to see all of them gone, dead. I mean, it's just this rage. It's a punishing way to live, says the preacher. No matter how much sitting here, we're actually like, oh, it seems so right. Don't do that, says the preacher. That's a bitter, punishing, self-limiting way to live. The way to live wisely under the brutal limitation of justice is found in verse 12. For again, there's a greater reality at play here in our unjust world, and that is the greater authority of the almighty, just God, whom we are to fear, the owner-manager of the earth. 
if we want to enjoy life, not killing ourselves over anger and retribution. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. You see? There is a better way to live. There is a way to live that ultimately brings the very greatest joy in life, that is fearing the Lord more than we fear the wicked. Fearing and worshipping the God who is just and overall and who has his hands over this limitation on life, who, who is more angry at injustice actually than we are. And give up everything over to him. Again, don't be the owner-manager of the earth. Let God do his job. That's his responsibility. You are ultimately powerless in the face of injustice. God isn't. Allow him to have his say. For verse 13, the, right, the wicked will not get away with it. We're not here for very long. We're visitors. Let's, let's leave God's personal authority to look over the unjust. Which means, incredibly, to some extent, we can get to verse 15. And so I commend joy. For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his life. You see, what's the outcome of letting God be God? And letting you be you? Joy. As bitterly difficult as our lives are sometimes, and I'm not washing over that, it is hard. The outcome of injustice is brutally difficult. But it is possible, in reminding what God does to those who are cruel, that we can actually live our lives joyfully, leaving it to him. That is what I commend, says the preacher. Allow God to take the strain. You live out as much as you can in the good things that you have in life, for God has given you everything under the sun. There's no better way to live than that. Life stinks. It is not as it should be. Things are really, really hard. But there will be moments when you can say, God has given me good in my time, and I will find joy in him. It's a much better way to live. Ecclesiastes doesn't gloss over how brutal life is. We know that we've looked at it, but we can enjoy him in it. And that brings us to the third point as we finish. We started last week. We are powerless ultimately again in the face of death. This is where we come full circle in these two chapters that we've had over these two weeks. And he starts this section on death in verse 1 in a curious place. But all this I laid to heart, examining into all how the righteous and the wise and the deeds are in the hands of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. In, in short, he says, no one has any idea what their day holds for them. And that is true, isn't it? What have our plans? We have our plans for the day, but they can change in a heartbeat. Verse 1 is saying that whether it is love or hate that awaits a mandate, both, both are sort of open to him as options. That, that sort of means you have no idea what you're walking out into as you leave your front door tomorrow morning. It might present you with bumping into a friend that you haven't seen for ages, and a conversation begins, and a relationship is rekindled, and the gospel is shared, and a beautiful story comes out of it of faith, which in many years you look back on, and your friend goes, goodness, do you remember that time I bumped into you outside your door? I had no idea you were living there. We're all here because of that moment. What are the chances? A lovely moment. Or whether you step out of your door in the morning and you trip over the ice and you snap your Achilles tendon and you're in hospital for ages and you lose work time and your job suddenly is on the line and redundancy is looming and everything has changed for worse just because of that one slip, a, a, a hateful moment. That's what the preacher means here. 
There's no telling what awaits us at any given moment. Our lives are so fragile. And that is the same for everyone, verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is the one who shuns an oath. That, that we're both, we're all in the same boat. Whether you're a believer or evil, the same ups and downs happen in a moment to everyone. However, he says, there is one thing you can be certain of, and that is, verse 3, death. This is, sermon's getting cheerier by the moment. This, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they all go to the dead. Whoever you are, ultimately there will be one moment in your life which will happen to you where you will cease to exist, and it happens to, to one and all. Again, the preacher confronts our total and final limitation of death. Uh, verse 3, it, it is a bad thing, generally, he says, for humanity. It is an evil thing that this is true. So much so that he says, verse 4, those who are joined with the living have hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. A dog back then was a, the filthiest creature that you could imagine having. It's much better being alive than a dog than being the most regal creature in the whole of creation and being dead, that's what he's saying. Basically, he's saying we're just all the same. You can be King Charles or, or even Queen Elizabeth, one of the greatest women in history, and well, she's going to be like I am in, in a few years' time. Dead. In other words, death robs everyone of everything in the living realm. And there's nothing we can prevent that from happening. The righteous die, the wicked die, the rich die, the poor die, the powerful die, the hopeless die. Everyone's robbed of life. And not only that, they're not even remembered after they're gone. The most incredible people, at best, have a blue plaque on the wall and names of nobody that we really know about. You have no power over this limitation, says the preacher. No one does. Death, from this perspective of this world at least, is remarkably final. And before we totally lose ourselves in a bit of depression, remember that this is from the perspective of this world, verse 3. Read that again. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they all go to the dead. I've done a lot of reading in this, and, and what the preacher is saying here is that for the general children of man, for the children of Adam, for the human race, the fallen race, the end point is a grievous evil. There is no more for the evil world. There is no enjoyment in the fact that death is waiting them. That's the curse of God on, of, on man. In and that is a bad thing. It was never meant to be. Because of man's evil, the evil reality of death is over all of us. And it's a horrible thing for humans to have to endure. It's horrible. God's son broke down and wept over his friend's tomb, as we saw last week in John 11. It, 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 John 11, it's just a brutal reality. But, and this is why Ecclesiastes is so important for us to look at, for it doesn't dodge the reality or the finality of human death, but it does provide all the gospel answers as to how we as believers deal with it. For look at what comes straight after this, the center point of this passage that we started with, a command of joy. Go, the preacher says to the believer. That's a command. That is who he's talking to. The one he's always been talking to is he commands us to live wisely. Go, believer, eat your bread with joy. It's joy that you can live now. Not the hateful life in, in, in verse 3. 
Don't live like the children of Adam in verse 3, full of hate and anger, railing against the bitterness of your brief existence marked by frustrating limitations of human authority and injustice and, and your death, trying to squeeze in selfish ends while you can, packing in as much as you can before you die, accruing as much stuff as humanly possible, trying to fight to overcome limitations. Don't live like that. Live freely in joy. Eat joyfully, drink joyfully, dress joyfully, clean yourselves joyfully, marry, form lasting friendships joyfully, for you are alive. And, and where there's life, there's hope. That's what verse 4 means. For in death, you realize something good and wise, and that is that you're just not here for very long. So enjoy the life that God has given you while you can, not hedonistically, but under the owner-manager, giving thanks to him. Don't panic, in other words, in the face of death. Don't rail against it. Don't try to control it. You can't. Leave the consequences of all of that to God, the owner-manager of the earth. You have been given beautiful things to enjoy and enjoy them. You have my permission to enjoy them. And you know me, says God. I am the God who gave you eternity into your hearts. You know that death is not the end. You know there is so much more set for you. We know in the risen Christ who answers all the questions in Ecclesiastes, brings us true meaning and, 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 and true joy in this fleeting life. And do it all, says the preacher, as he draws his section to a close, as we do, knowing that you have no idea when your last, where your last day will be, where life is so unpredictable. Leave, live each day, he finishes here in verses 11 and 12, as if it is your last for any misfortune could before you at any moment. Verses 11 and 12, again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is our last point. You can enjoy life uh, wisely, knowing that any day could be your last. Uh, Lewis Hamilton is arguably the greatest racing driver of all time. And were it not for one of the most unfortunate crashes in Formula One history, he would have been immortalized without question as the greatest racing driver of all time. In the 2021 season, Hamilton was on his penultimate lap of his last race in the lead of the chasing pack. No one could touch him. His nearest rival was disappearing into the distance behind him with one lap to go. All he had to do was finish and he would have won his eighth world championship title. All he had to do was finish in his position, something no one had ever done before. But on that penultimate lap, there was a minor crash on the part of the track, nowhere near Lewis Hamilton, involving a driver that had no bearing on the race outcome. Because of this minor crash, the race marshal made the dubious decision to halt the race at that point. And because now all the cars were bunched up, as soon as the race started again, his rival overtook him on the last corner of the last lap, won the championship, took his crown, took his record, took his title, and took his immortality. Quote, unquote. Because of one minor crash, one dubious decision, not even related to him, everything that Hamilton had ever worked for was lost. And there was nothing, and there is nothing that he can do about it. The race for Lewis Hamilton was not to the swift. He was the swiftest, fastest man on four wheels, and yet for a minor issue unrelated to him that didn't concern him, the race was ultimately not his. The battle was not to the strong. Misfortune befell him totally out of his control, and he was powerless. That is life, says the preacher. For all of us, 
The swift will stumble and the strong will fall. Face facts, says the preacher. Accept your limitations, says the preacher. Accept the vagaries and the sometimes grossly unfortunate turn of events that life can put in your way. And doing so, accepting all these things, not being surprised by these things, live out each day as if it was your last with joy, knowing the God of eternity. You have no idea what may happen to you tomorrow. And, and so today now, do you know the God of eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ? some freakish event that turns your life upside down. Enjoy life now, knowing that life is unpredictable, out of your control. Holding on to the God of eternity, he gives you good things in a hard, fleeting life who is concerned for your eternal joy. Enjoy this life knowing that he is in control, that he is the owner-manager of the earth, that he holds you in the certainty of death, that he has your past, your present, your future, that he knows what will befall you, what will frustrate you, and yet he has you, and so we can rejoice. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's what we are to be like under our earthly powers. Reasonable, not hasty. For the Lord is at hand. That's what we saw under the injustice we face. Leave it to him. And do not be anxious about anything, even death. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding in the things that we cannot understand will guard your hearts and your minds forever in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father God, thank you and praise you so much for the amount of time you've been able to spend in Ecclesiastes over the course of this term, thank you for its raw and, and wonderful wisdom. Father God, I, help, I hope that we would be people who are people who are real, uh, who are realists, who confront reality as it is, that we would accept these limitations that you have placed over us, and, and that we would accept that you are God, the owner-manager of all, and that you have everything in your hand. You have our breath in your hand. You have our very days in your hand. You know where we will be, what will happen to us. Lord, help us, help, help for that to just release us from the pressure and the pain and the frustration of having to try and control everything. Father God, may we be able to hand all these things over to you. Our, our children, our, 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 our marriages, our, our friendships, our jobs. These are really difficult things. Heavenly Father, I really pray that we would be able to do that. We would be able to entrust them to the God who knows us better than we know ourselves and who holds our futures and who holds our death and, and who holds and knows our eternity. Father God, I do pray that these passages will leave us from here, leaving here with joy, real joy, not, not necessarily glib happiness, but deep joy in the risen Lord Jesus Christ who takes us through this fleeting life, who does gives, give us wonderful things that we can enjoy to be thankful for and brings us into an eternity with him. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.